Okay, so we are here for another Down the Hatch podcast, and uh, Alicia in the Easton podcast suggested that we take on other topic areas, and one that she suggested is expiratory muscle strength training, also known as EMST. And we have another doctoral student here with us, Lauren Tabor. She's also a speech pathologist with several years experience in head and neck populations and ALS and has a strong interest in respiration as it relates to swallowing and in fact will likely be doing her dissertation on such topics. No pressure as somebody on your committee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we are excited that obviously uh, we have a nice range of expertise here in the room. And uh, Lauren, do you want to introduce yourself any differently? Um, no, I think you did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. I'll it. take that. And of course, as always, we have um, Alicia Vos here. And we have some questions for you, Lauren. We need you to answer them as honestly as possible. And by the way, you cannot plead the fifth. Okay. Fair. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, it's interesting in... The swallowing world, I think, when it comes to these device-driven therapies, there's a lot of questions ranging around what populations are they appropriate for, how do we use them, what pathophysiologies, um, you know, what are the recommendations around them, and a lot of times it's not very clear. So I think this is a good opportunity for us to just discuss, you know, Lauren, I know you have a lot of experience using EMST, and maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, what populations you've used them, used the device with, and then where you've seen benefit. Can you tell us what it is first? Sure. Oh, that's a good idea. So the EMST is the expiratory muscle strength trainer developed first here at UF by Dr. Chris Sapienza and Paul Davenport. UF stands for the University, University of, of Florida. Florida. Um, and the device was initially created to improve respiratory generating capacities, both inspiratory and expiratory, and was first uh, used in research with healthy individuals trying to improve exercise performance. Um, Had nothing to do with swallowing, right? No, no. That actually didn't cross over until Dr. Sapienza, due to her interests, kind of got into the world and and brought it over into into our world. So so that reminds me of lingual the IOP, mm-hmm. right? So the IOP was developed by Eric Lushai in, I believe, Iowa. And he initially created it for speech. But Dr. Joanne Robbins thought, given her area mm-hmm. of expertise in swallowing, I wonder if we can use this for swallowing. So that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Wow, interesting. The Iowa Oral Performance Instrument was developed in Iowa. Who yeah. thought? Well, I actually had to think about that. I'm like, so, like, where was that? <laughs> Good in Idaho. Shut up. Um, so, yeah, the EMST is a handheld respiratory trainer. It uh, has a spring valve in it, which is a threshold, and you, you set that threshold to whatever you want pending the patient's individual respiratory measures. And they expire into the device hard enough to break the threshold, and that counts as one repetition. What do you mean by threshold? <clears throat> so they have to apply a certain amount of pressure to break the seal. And do you hear a pop? Yeah, you get a little bit of biofeedback. It's like a... Ah, that's what that is. Mm-hmm. So if you don't blow hard enough, it's just like Resistance. kind of dead air. Yeah. Okay. So okay. that's how they know that they've actually, you know blown hard enough. Okay. Okay. So um, then I guess the first the first question is, how do you know how hard somebody should blow? Right. So <clears throat> the thing that I kind of like about 
the MST device is that you can individualize it just like you do any exercise regimen. Mm -hmm. So based on the parameters that you collect from the patient at the baseline, um, we do maximum expiratory and maximum inspiratory pressures, and mm -hmm. we base the threshold off of each individual's, you know, 50% of their max or 75% of their max. There's a lot of different literature and exercise physiology that looks at a couple different thresholds and mm -hmm. Just like it, it varies in exercise physiology, it varies in the swallowing literature as to what is the best threshold to set it at. Some of our studies have ranged anywhere from 30 to 50 to 75% of each individual's maximum, and that's just based off of kind of the population you're dealing with and what kind of results you're expecting. You know what, my, I guess my first question should have been, what is thought, what do people what does literature say that EMST actually does to physiology? Can so, you describe that in a very basic way so we understand? So physiologically, it was first created to improve the strength of the exp expiratory muscles. So internal intercostals um, and the abdominal muscles. And Later, it was found to also, by default, improve strength of the inspiratory muscles just because you're also inhaling in order to exhale. Um, that was kind of the exercise performance portion of it. When it was developed for the swallowing literature, they were thinking it more in terms of force generating capacity as it pertains to airway protection. So if you can generate more airflow, more force by improving those kind of um, the coordination, the force, and the muscle strength, then you can improve airway protection. Mm -hmm. It's been, since then, it's been looked at in a few different ways. It's been looked at from a voluntary and reflexive cough standpoint, as well as the temporal and kinematic measures of swallowing, like yeah. hyoid duration, um, or burst of, hyoid burst, and then maximum hyoid duration. Well, I think it's important at this point to really emphasize that when we talk about swallowing related airway protection, we're talking about two different things, mm -hmm. right? So we have closure of the laryngeal vestibule that prevents material from entering the airway in the first place. And we also have, when we talk about airway protection, is cough productivity mm -hmm. and the ability to expectorate material that has entered the airway already. So, so is that protection? So it's interesting. So prevention of aspiration sounds like what you're saying, obviously, mm -hmm. is laryngeal vestibule closure. Mm -hmm. yep. And then protection from the bolus moving further into the lungs right. is, or perhaps ejecting from a deeper place, because right. you can eject from your lungs, mm -hmm. is the Well, it's what, what line of defense are you talking about? Exactly. First line of defense, second line of defense, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. But right. I think it's important that you can capitalize on the second line of defense, that being mm -hmm. the ejection portion, yep. when you know that the initial protection of the airway is already compromised. Exactly. Well, when you look at the penetration aspiration scale that was um, developed by Dr. Rosenbeck, mm -hmm. those are two important pieces to yeah. that scale is, you know, your ability to first line of defense protect, but also your ability to uh, manage what, you know, got past the first line of defense, really. Right. And, and it's not just your ability, but your even attempt to. Exactly. You know, you get points for trying. Yep. You get a participation trophy in the penetration aspiration scale. You really scale, do. <laughs> right? So then, it's, I guess, for those who are learning this anew, if we had to say that there, there are two goals to swallowing, one is to move the bolus efficiently 
through to the esophagus without leaving any material behind mm -hmm. or leaving minimal material behind. <clears throat> and the other goal is to, by the way, while the bolus is moving through, keep it in the safe zone and not into the airway. Mm -hmm. Would it be safe to say that EMST primarily targets airway protection, not bolus efficiency? I think that's safe, yes. Okay. Although they're now looking at EMST's effects on UES opening. Oh, talk more about that. So there's been a much more recent study posted or published in laryngoscopy, I believe, by Dr. Kate Hutchison. Laryngoscope. Mm -hmm. Laryngoscope. Mm -hmm. um, by Dr. Kate Hutchison looking at EMST during high-resolution manometry mm -hmm. and found that UES opening was longer during EMST? You mean when blowing in the device? Into the device. So not during swallowing? No. Okay. But when blowing into the device, it the pressure uh, transducer in the catheter showed lower pressure around the UES during the repetition. Hmm. Do, do you also get that when you sneeze or cough or Valsalva? Isn't it the same mechanism ultimately? Like what is the mechanism that the... that Kate Hutch Dr. Kate Hutchinson's paper is um, suggesting might be at play. Obviously, we know that high laryngeal elevation plays a role. Mm -hmm. Do we do we get a burst of elevation and hyoid movement at the time? Because I know that there's more submental activation. Mm -hmm. Dr. Karen Heglin's right. dissertation yep. shows that compared mm -hmm. to an effortful swallow and compared to a Mendelssohn maneuver, an EMSD has and compared to a natural swallow with no, you know, just a regular swallow that you do get quite a burst of submental activity, suggesting right. hyoid um, mm -hmm. elevation. But do you know of any studies that are showing hyoid kinematics when blowing at EMST, blowing on EMST and the EMST device? Any studies that show hyoid kinematics? Yeah, what are, are there kinematic studies showing that the hyoid and larynx move? So you can have a burst of activity, but it's not accompanied by significant movement of the structures that it's connected to. Does that make sense? Yeah. There. Well, and they didn't look at other structures to my knowledge, but the 2011 paper by Dr. Sapienzas and Sapienza and Davenport um, showed increased hyoid displacement. Yeah, they did in... During EMST versus rest. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and they okay. did in Dr. Heglin's study, I believe I'd have to check, that they did, looked at hyoid kinematics in patients with stroke. Okay. Um, and saw differences. They did also see differences in laryngeal vestibule closure. Um, what kind of differences? So... A, kind of a ceiling effect, though, didn't had, they? Well, and they, the way that they measured it was based on the MBS IMP, mm -hmm. where it was um, 0, 1... Through four, two, zero, one, and two for LVC, MBSIMP. Um, so no, it didn't laryngeal closure, some and um, complete. Exactly. Okay. So um, these are non-swallowing tasks, right? And there have been some question about how well not just EMST, but non-swallowing tasks translate to swallowing, mm -hmm. right? So is there generalization to the swallowing task? And these questions have been raised about Shakir. Mm -hmm. They've been raised about lingual strengthening. They've been raised about, you know, when people are doing oral mech things like crazy. Mm -hmm. And they were also raised for thermal tactile stimulation right. and now for EMST. What I studies point to the whether or not EMST transfers to 
swallowing. We know it transfers to cough. Right. Because it directly manages yeah. expiratory muscles for which cough mm-hmm. seriously relies on. Right. And the motor airflow parameters exactly. have been shown to improve. Yeah. Exactly. I think when in that level of airway protection that we're uh-huh. talking about, the cough function, I think that use of EMSC is much more established and mm-hmm. accepted in the literature. I agree. I think where it does get gray is when we're talking about the swallowing kinematics. Mm-hmm. So right now, I think there aren't I don't think there aren't any papers published on EMST's effect on swallowing kinematics. Okay. Um, other than the kind of things that we previously discussed, not mm-hmm. directly related to the swallow though, because it's just showing that those things happen while you're doing EMST. It doesn't say that those things then translate mm-hmm. to whenever the person is actually swallowing a bolus. But there was that study by Michelle Trochet, Dr. Michelle Trochet. I got to throw the doctors on all my colleagues. Um, in neurology, in PD, correct, mm-hmm. where they did a pre and post study design mm-hmm. where they found out the person's baseline swallowing function and they had a series, uh, a period of exercise with EMST mm-hmm. and then the post training function and that there were changes in swallowing related to that. Um, and I suspect that high weight movement was one of them and now thinking back to reading that paper. It's just a question of whether or not, um, what's happening during that black box period, like right. during the treatment, is it gradually getting better, is it not? Right. right. What else is happening? Yeah. I think and a lot of the outcome measures that are used are the PAS, which are, is great, mm-hmm. but it's not sensitive enough to tell us exactly what physiologically is changing. It's not that it's not sensitive, it doesn't tell us anything right. about, about physiology, physiology right. in terms of what's causing the aspiration. Right. Well, and my, one of my biggest issues is a lot of the outcome measures, when, when it is focused on kinematics, is really looking at one, trajectory of the hyoid bone or two activation of submental muscles mm-hmm. which i understand um you know measuring these things however do re do we really want to translate that to every protection mm-hmm. right and in my opinion if we're going to be looking at the effect of EMST on airway protection, we need to look at the effect on laryngeal vestibule closure directly. So let me see if I understand what you're saying. Airway protection is also cough. So you're not talking about protection post-aspiration. No, I'm talking you're about, talking about during, first line of defense. Got it. First line of defense, not second line of defense. Exactly. I like this delineation here. Mm-hmm. So your question is, can it improve actual laryngeal vestibule closures to mm-hmm. prevent aspiration in the first place? Exactly. And that's what we don't quite know. But what's interesting is we actually have these data. And by we, I mean people who've, post, who've published studies and looked at the hyoid those data can be unearthed to yeah. look at the laryngeal vestibule closure. Because I agree with you, Alicia, and, and Alba Azola, Dr. Alba Azola, says this all the time, the hyoid bone is overrated, the hyoid bone is overrated. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand her point there, because if you have beautiful laryngeal vestibule closure, but you don't have good elevation, and you never aspirate because LVC looks good, who cares if you didn't get this amazing right. amount? Because I've seen people have great hyoid extent, but the larynx mm-hmm. was left in the coal, and so now they've just opened the laryngeal vestibule because right. right. the larynx didn't come up with it. Or look at your Easton studies where you actively perturbed the hyoid bone and those patients were able to still get complete laryngeal vestibule yeah. closure. Yeah, that's true. So I mean, I think right now the, the whole people. theory behind EMST improving airway protection is just based 
is a theory. Well, exactly, but it's based in the principles of plasticity. I mean, if you think about the Mm -hmm. task that you're doing Mm -hmm. and transference, and then you think about specificity because Mm -hmm. you are still training the same system, Mm -hmm. you're just training several different muscles. and then in the, in the neurodegenerative disease populations, the multiple sclerosis, PD, Huntington's, ALS, you know, use it or lose it. Right. So, I mean, all of these things directly, it's not like it's just willy-nilly kind of out there. Mm-hmm. There's definitely, uh, it can be a hypothesis-driven thing. It's not just a fishing expedition. No, I completely agree. I don't think any of the studies were fishing expeditions. I think that in swallowing, many studies fell into the trap of focusing on whatever the most prominent thing is. And hello, I my very first study on ESTEM, sure, we our primary outcome variable was movement at rest with ESTEM, but then we had the swallows. For some reason, I was like, let's look at virtual transit time. Nobody right. said why. And it was the stupidest thing to look at. And now I should have been looking at laryngovascular closure. Who the, these are healthy people, the five and old bolus. And of course we sound, found no difference. But I chose the wrong outcome variable mm-hmm. because that was the most obvious thing to me at that time as a brand new scientist. Right, right. So obviously mm-hmm. all science can improve and in swallowing we have unique mm-hmm. issues. But I do think that the good, the, the positive things about EMST are that if you have a patient population with persistent, persistent aspiration, you're not going to be able to help this population to prevent aspiration for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. But you want to strengthen their ability to cough. Mm-hmm. then I think that that is a these these are patients who need an alternative right mm-hmm. and I think this is the literature suggests that this is a, one of the better opportunities for this group yeah absolutely I, I do have a ca- caveat okay um, so as a speech pathologist and I've been working with Dr. Emily Plowman <laughs> for the past uh, five years or six years now on uh, working with EMST as an inter- in an intervention studies with patients with ALS. So I always get asked the question naturally, which is completely fair. Should I use EMST with my ALS patient? Hmm. And it's a really hard question to answer and not just because I've never seen these patients, but because I don't want to be putting out into the universe that we are studying EMST specifically for treatment in ALS patients. It's just because when you run a research study, you have to choose a specific patient population, Mm -hmm. and this just so happens to be the passion of Dr. Emily Plowman, and now mine too. So it's more of, I don't want it to be a device-driven or a population-driven thing. I would much rather think about what physiology did this improve in ALS and, you know, potentially use it for other patients based on the physiologic impairments that you find, not based on the fact that they have this diagnosis. Right. So if I had to summarize what we've said so far, we've said the following. One, EMST focuses on the airway protection component of the swallowing goal, right? Not bolus efficiency and residue and that kind of thing. Also, it the literature suggests that it is a strong alternative for people who you might not be able to work on prevention in the first place of aspiration, but for expelling aspirated material. And another is that in general, individuals with respiratory, I guess, insufficiency might benefit more than somebody who has a strong cough already. So there's no point in getting perhaps somebody who's had head and neck surgery and has 
relatively immobile structures. So aspirate, you're not getting the epiglottis to flip, but when they cough, they get it all out. Mm -hmm. They might not need EMST as much as somebody who's going downhill because respiration is sort of part of their disease process. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a reason why this, one of the first populations that EMST was used in was, you know, vocalists and instrumentalists, people that are dependent upon their respiratory system to really, you know. Really? So are you saying that regular people like me can hold notes longer, singing notes longer in the shower if we do EMST? EMST? Yes, Yes, their performance was better. Wow. So there's a future for me in singing, what you're saying. Or instrument playing. Yeah. Except I'm a pianist, so that doesn't help much. You can sustain a vowel for a longer period of time. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Shut up! (laughs) I think there's two things I want to add to sort of some of your summary statements is one, there's a lot about EMST that we don't know yet, and I think that there's a lot to be explored. I I found um, Dr. Hutchinson's paper, when they looked at, when they used HRM to with EMST, is they Wait, saw- Wait, did we say what HRM is? High-resolution high resolution. manometry. Okay, and that So looking at pharyngeal pressures. Mm-hmm. And, and UES pressures. And UES pressures, and they did see increased pharyngeal and UES pressures um, with the use of EMST versus a sham group. Increased UES pressures? Increased pharyngeal pressures. Increased pharyngeal pressures, but decreased UES pressures. Are you talking about Kate Hutchinson's mm-hmm. paper? In the okay. scope, yeah. So I think that that's one. I think that it's, when it comes to, I'm gonna speak on a research perspective, is when we look into the future of EMST, I think it's gonna be really important to choose very carefully outcome measures. So if we're looking at laryngeal vestibule closure, looking at the amount of closure, looking at the duration of closure, looking at reaction, all the aspects of laryngeal closure, because if we're just measuring it as present or absent, we might not be sensitive sensitive enough to capture some of these subtle changes that a treatment like EMST can um, potentially change. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I want to add is going back to the clinic, and we talked, we touched upon, you know, what patients do we use this for? And Lauren, you had mentioned to get away from this idea of focusing on a diagnosis, but really thinking about pathophysiology. We covered cough. I think that that's more mm-hmm. established, but really thinking about the function of your patient. So say you have a patient, and this is getting more into specifically with speech pathologists. If you have a patient that does have decreased breath support, right? And you take a, a population like Parkinson's disease where that's, you know, mm-hmm. COPD, things like this, but they don't have any swallowing problems. Mm-hmm. Right? Is it appropriate for speech pathologists to be implementing EMST if it's not hmm. directly related to eventually <laughs> you're asking, swallowing? You're asking the age old question about the toolbox and having to declare yes. the pathophysiology and, well, before you put your hand in there. Specifically to Parkinson's disease, they have a lot of concomitant voice issues. Mm-hmm. Did you say concomitant? I did. I never heard nobody say it like that. I've always, always heard concomitant. Is there a way with to say British accent? No, I learned that in the United States. <laughs> You're right. They didn't say it's with a British I've been accent. With Emily for too long. It's true. Con- I'm to concomitant. Okay. <laughs> they also have voice issues. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So from like a billing standpoint and from a from a treatment standpoint, I do think that there's a rationale there. Well, for the, yeah. So I just want to see. I feel like I'm hearing two different things. You're saying is there a rationale and from a billing statement, a trend uh, standpoint and, and etc. Yes, there's absolutely a rationale for EMST. Mm-hmm. I think what you're saying is not EMST focus as much as it is treatment focus, where once somebody has a hammer, everything's a nail. I done went to the training, I bought the device, I'm using it, right? I'm right. using it on everybody, right? right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the issue is, that there are perhaps places where it is part of the protocol of the institution to use a treatment. Now, right. I think that that potentially can work if there's a f- philosophy that is attached to that patient population you deal with. You know how there are places where they treat cancer this way, or yeah. that hospital has a philosophy where everyone gets radiation, and there's another place where they're like, hey, we do surgery, right? There's that philosophy. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, they all, they probably agree on the cancer in the first place, the mm-hmm. kind of cancer, but their treatment approach might differ. Right. I think what you're saying, Alicia, is if you do a bedside eval, and one, you don't really know what the pathophysiology is, perhaps, mm-hmm. or you're going based on a floral that doesn't support that treatment. Mm-hmm. Why does everybody in the institution have to go through the same treatments? Right. You know, it's sort of like we do radiation. We do radiation. Maybe you have cancer. Maybe you broke your toe. But we do radiation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. I think, is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I think we just have to be careful about one, our scope of practice, mm-hmm. and using the device in areas that are not really our scope of practice. Okay. If you're just purely treating a decreased breath support when the de- when the decreased breath support isn't impacting voice and it's right. not impacting swallowing, mm-hmm. then I think so we need should to we be say treating, it. Should we be treating normal function? So I struggle with or this. Or are we accidentally treating normal right. function? Go ahead. Yeah. And I struggle with this. And this is very specific to like ALS, PD, things that I know are going to get worse mm-hmm. over time. Right. That's, I think because that's different too. In a prophylactic way, sure. much mm-hmm. like head and neck cancer has exercises and kind of things that you know are going to happen due to the late effects of radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a question I get often. Should I be doing EMST when they get the ALS, PD, whatever diagnosis because of the known swallowing and voice impairments they're going mm-hmm. to have? Mm-hmm. And I really can't answer that. Yeah. Because part of me wants to say, that seems like the right thing to do. Yeah. If you know that function is going to decline, you want to improve their trajectory of decline but I don't see as anything much as being, possible. I don't see anything wrong with prophylact. I mean, in even in people for whom we know they're going to have a surgery that is going to really impact their, like their the function, that's what I mean. Yeah. You know that you need to sort of beef up whatever they've got if you can in any way. Right. Mm-hmm. And I get that. But what if somebody comes into a, an institute with a longstanding stroke deficit that's always the same? Right. And they, they're known to have poor UES opening. Right. That's what they have. Every time they do a floor, it's the same darn thing. Mm-hmm. They can cough like crazy if they need to. They expel it every time they have consistent reports. Mm-hmm. So they have right. UES issues and they're everyone does lingual strengthening. Right. Why? Right. Now, on one hand, I get the argument that some people feel like some kind of movement is good. Mm-hmm. We need them to be doing something, moving things, blah, blah, blah. And I've heard the argument, well, if you're activating the submentals, that can't be bad. But, but the issue is, why wouldn't we do something that's more targeted? 
right? right? Why not? I mean, if you go to some place because you have an issue with walking and they have you do like fist punches, I don't even know if that's a thing, but let's say that's a treatment. And you're like, well, you use your arms to walk at some point, don't you? You're like, right, right. But see, my leg. But see, my leg is not working. We get that. But when you walk, do your arms move? Yes. So we're working on your arms right now. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, the tongue plays a role in swallowing. You could say the tongue is connected to the hyoid, the hyoid is connected to the larynx, the larynx is connected to the <laughs> UES. So you're getting your treatment. Yeah. You couldn't say that. But this dude's UES is wor- not working now. So we're not going to work from the tongue down. You know what I mean? Right. So the question is, when will we ever get more targeted? Right. And that's my issue with the submental muscles is that the more and more I learn about laryngeal vestibule closure directly, and the involvement of the hyoid and the submentals, it just feel like their relationship is not as tight as we once thought that it was. Um, so getting back to what you were saying, though, with EMST, I think that there are certain pathophysiologies that the rationale for using EMST is much more established. And I think that there are others that it is... A stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, well, especially if a patient doesn't have dysphagia and is not in a neurodegenerative category. And I get that. I mean, I get that question a lot. You know, I think that people are like, how do you even support this? This is the respiratory therapist. Right. Job. Exactly. Which wow. in some cases, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Weaning a patient from a vent. Dr. Danny Martin's research, you know, that he's been doing for the past 20 years has all been, and he is a respiratory therapist, mm-hmm. um, focused on that. But I think it's what you're trying to improve, you know, just as, and I think, I think it's a more of a collaborative thing. We don't, of course, there's scope of practice issues and there are boundaries, but if we can all be doing things to help our patients from different perspectives, then I think it, it, they're going to benefit in the long yeah. run. If you can provide a rationale as to why you're doing it, that actually makes sense. Then I think that. Mm-hmm. You know what beneficial. I think? Have you guys seen that map that they do about like it's either basketball, sports, and sports, basketball, sports, or <laughs> basketball, football, or baseball, and it's like a map of whatever the mascot is, and it's bigger or smaller for certain states. Like if you're in the Northeast, it's like Redskins, 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 right? If like know. in terms of fans, like. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, like like percentage who do people of... root for? Yeah. Map, right? Yeah. Gosh, uh-huh. it took 10 years to get out. I bet you there's a, what treatment do SLPs yeah. use now? <laughs> and in the, I'm telling you, I'm new to Florida. And I feel like given that EMST was rooted here, it's like everybody does it. It's like, do you like the Gators? I'm a, it's like, I'm at UF, aren't I? Like, do you think that it's Wisconsin like, has a huge IOP? Oh, like, totally. that whole Midwest <laughs> is just IOP. Or Iowa. Yeah. Or I yeah, like. and, then, and then you know what I mean. Like I kind of the Midwest. <laughs> Clearly, that's just a, the flyover. Um, anyway, our the point is, is I do think huh? our geography is. Bad. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> I don't. Like, don't it would be sick to small. Um, so I just feel like sometimes the philosophy gets passed down to you. I'm sure we're not the only field where this is the case. I'm sure there are sort of approaches that were developed at I don't know UC Davis and. From, you know, with certain mile radius, ENTs do mm-hmm. something there. Or, you yeah. know what I mean? I, I'm sure that's possible. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the difference is probably that the field agrees on the diagnosis. And this is one of many approaches that can treat it. Mm-hmm. We're not arguing about when you have this confirmed UES issue, should it be Shakir or should it be Mendelssohn? Because both have been shown to impact the UES. We're like, what about lingual strengthening? Like, that's right. way off. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I think... 
the other thing is clinicians are using these devices in a lot of their various patient populations with various pathophysiologies. And I think it's important for clinicians to know that research doesn't have to live in a lab, that Mm -hmm. as a clinician, you know, you have the ability to take pre and post data on every patient you do this with. I've been saying that for years. You know, it's you do a fluoro and you put a patient through uh, the EMST regimen, um, which is typically prescribed as... um, So it's based off of exercise physiology, um, five days a week, five sets of five repetitions um, from anywhere... I mean, it's been done anywhere from four to eight, and now we're doing it for 12 weeks. You can mm-hmm. do a combination of inspiratory and expiratory training. I mean, it's just, that's why there are options, because it's based on right. your population and the patient mm-hmm. that you're dealing with. So just like any, when you go to the gym, the trainer doesn't give, hopefully, the same right. generic exercise regimen to every single person they see. They base it off of, mm-hmm. and I think that's a little bit more difficult for us, because it's much more new, so, you know, just early Also, 2000s. we can't really, we can't so, see what's changing. Right. And that actually brings me to why I think people, uh, clinicians love devices and numbers change. Yeah. And they're objective, objective and you can write yeah, them down. Well, and insurance say, companies like that. Exactly. So we are to some degree conforming to what is expected of us, whether or not our mm-hmm. mechanism of expertise can conform and we can actually talk about swallowing, which yeah. is fine. I mean, I do think that non-swallowing tasks can impact swallowing. I just don't know that the literature is as strong. And frankly, there's sw- many tests, uh, swallowing treatments that don't necessarily, I mean, look at the e they're swallowing, right, with e on. And we just talked last yeah. month about how the literature is all over the place. Right. But I think for clinicians who are deciding about or doing whatever they're doing, they're like, wait, you're telling me it doesn't work? Well, no, I don't have to tell you that. You can tell me that in about three months worth of patients, take all of them and check to see what they're doing. I'm not talking about other numbers changing on the dial and the device in front of you. Of course they're changing. Um, but the question is, what are your objective swallowing outcomes, be they bedside things mm-hmm. or instrumental, and are they changing alongside it? Mm-hmm. Are you structuring, are you structuring your clinical practice to get at a problem and watch its change over time and document it? Or is everybody sort of going through the black box and they come out with a diet change for which you were subjectively changing anyway? Yeah. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I think we can wrap it up. What do we want to say? So, so Lauren, after all all that, should I use it? (laughs) Should I use EMST? I'll cry if you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, you have to, like we've been saying, you have to base it on physiologic impairments. It may or may not be appropriate. What's your ideal patient that you would use it on? Like if you had a patient that was like, boy, this patient would be great for EMST, what's that patient look like? So it is, well, I... I'm prone to say an ALS patient because they have respiratory insufficiency. Mm-hmm. They have known cough weakness, um, both motor and anecdotally we've seen sensory as well. Um, so I'm looking for a patient who has airway protection issues and not a good um, stage two, phase two response. What do we call it? Oh, the second line of defense. Second, not a good second oh my line goodness, of defense. Gracious, I was like, stage. That she was going into the Palmer articles. <laughs> so last. No, we're not going to do that at this point. Um, not a good second line of defense because I know that the motor airflow parameters um, shown through voluntary and reflexive cough have been shown to improve following EMST training. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Good. I, mm-hmm. I was just going to say, I have those patients that they're right on that line, you know, where they have airway invasion, they penetrate to the cord, sometimes they aspirate, sometimes they, they kind of sense it, sometimes they can, you know, mm-hmm. um, cough it out, that they're on that line of, gosh, if you could just consistently clear that every time, I'd be okay with you. Oh, yeah, my recommendations would be so much more liberal. So much more. If so sometimes I'm like, response. I just want to, I want to target that. I want to mm-hmm. use the MST. I want to get your cough better because I want to know that even if you're penetrating or aspirating, I know that you can cough it out every time. Right. And I'm comfortable with that, mm-hmm. you know? So I think when it comes to that aspect of second line of defense and swallowing, I think it can have tremendous, you know, improvements. Maybe it's, maybe we're not hitting quite swallowing kinematics per se yet, but it can make the difference in NPO and a regular diet. Right. If you can expectorate that that material. So one thing we never mentioned here, which we often don't do, is none of this gets to sensory because we're assuming that they even know when to cough. Mm -hmm. Like what if you have a great cough, but it never gets triggered? Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel like the next or an upcoming down the hatch should really focus on sensory testing because it is completely ignored. Mm -hmm. And it is something that every clinician has the capability to do. What? What's so funny? It's my dissertation topic. Oh, is it? <laughs> yes. See, I'm on your committee. I don't even know what you're doing. I feel like TBD, a negligent. March 29th. Ooh, I'm excited. It's like, <laughs> this, is, this is your official trailer right now. Awesomeness. Awesome. <laughs> well, the last, um, you would be interested in the last dysphagia grand rounds was on a sensory paper. And I had this whole section, which just got posted today. And I had the whole section on sensory and just isolated sensory testing for swallow-related things. So, yeah, so maybe their cough response isn't strong because a sensory trigger is not sufficient right. for that stimulus. Mm-hmm. That's exactly and, what we're going to do. You know, it's oh, just varying really? concentrations of capsaicin. Yep. From super threshold identified in normal, healthy individuals, all the way down to really, really sub threshold values and seeing if their sensory response profiles vary across different patients mm-hmm. compared to normal controls mm-hmm. and vary within the same patient across different concentrations. Awesome. So, TBD, 2018, coming in hot. All right. <laughs> I think that's kind of what we can say about EMST is TBD. Like, yeah. I think there's so much more research that needs to go into. I think our field in general needs more research on treatment oh. efficacy yeah. mm-hmm. and what these not just devices, but what these treatment treatments are actually doing to swallowing kinematics, not just um, changes in diets, not changes even in penetration aspiration right. scores, but how is it affecting the physiology of swallowing? I mm-hmm. think is just that is that is like the mark that is the push of mm-hmm. like if years ago it was about jobs in the United mm-hmm. States. Right now it's about physiology in our field because you know it's not it's not just about um bolus flow and aspirate yes or no Mm -hmm. people are really saying no you have to really give us useful information that i can take with me yeah so um i really enjoyed this discussion i Mm -hmm. got some concepts crystallized in my brain so thank you lauren for being willing to do this and i look forward to hearing about what your dissertation's about (laughs) all right wonderful Leg bone, leg bone connected to the knee bone, the knee bone connected to the thigh bone, the thigh bone connected to the hip bone.